So we need to talk about relationships. And we need to talk about your relationship with data. I'm being a little silly here, but listen, you, you have a lot of data at your fingerprints as a school leader. Is it helpful? Is it guiding your decisions? Is it overwhelming? Do you even know what to do with it? Well, today's guest is sort of a data expert, and he wrote a book called Decisions Over Decimals. And he's here to unpack how leaders can best leverage and use data. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hey, it's Danny, Chief Ruckus Maker over at Better Leaders, Better Schools. I am a principal development and retention expert, best-selling author, and I host two of the world's most downloaded podcasts. And this show is for ruckus makers, which means you've made three commitments. You commit to investing in your continuous growth. You've committed to challenging the status quo. And you've committed to designing the future of school right now. And we'll be back after some messages from our show sponsors. Hey, Ruckus Maker, I'll make this quick. If you're listening to this message right now, you're missing out. When you subscribe to the Ruckus Maker newsletter on Substack, you get access to microbooks focused on how to do school different, tools and other resources that will help you make a ruckus and do school different, stories and case studies of the world's most legendary ruckus makers of all time, access to my calendar to schedule coaching sessions, and you'll also get bonus podcast content that won't be released on the main podcast feed and podcast episodes without any advertisements. So if you love this show, if it's helped you grow, and you want access to more tools and resources that will help you make a ruckus and do school different, and become a paid subscriber at ruckusmakers.substack.com. That's ruckusmakers.substack.com. I'm sure you've heard that energy flows to where attention goes, right? If you want to get more of what you want when you want it as a school leader, I've got a tool for you. The secret is to celebrate the positive things happening on campus and to go multiple levels deeper to tap into why it even matters. When you do that, anything is possible on your campus. And I mean anything. And you start to get more of what you want when you want it. If you'd like to spread more positivity and create more value for all stakeholders on your campus, go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash positive and download your free tool today. Over 1 million teachers rely on IXL because it's empowering. It helps them make better decisions with reliable data and it adapts instruction based on student performance. Get started today at IXL.com leaders. That's IXL.com slash leaders. How would you like to increase student talk by an average of 40%? More student ownership, more student discourse. Check it out for yourself by trying out TeachFX. Go to teachfx.com forward slash better leaders to pilot their program today. Ruckus maker. If you're ready to make a real impact school-wide, Get a copy of Executive Functions for every classroom, for every staff member on campus, and engage in a book study campus-wide. Head over to OrganizeBinder.com book to get your copy of Executive Functions for every classroom today. 
That's organizedbinder.com slash book. All right. Hey, Ruckus Makers. We are here today with Professor Oded Metzer, who is the Vice Dean of Research in the Arthur J. Sandberg Professor of Business at Columbia Business School, an affiliate of the Columbia Data Science Institute and the author of Decisions Over Decimals. Professor Netzer is a world-renowned expert in data-driven decision-making and extracting meaningful insights from data. He wrote dozens of papers published in the top-tier academic journals. His award-winning research is broadly read and highly cited. All right. He is an award-winning teacher as well at Columbia Business School's MBA, Executive MBA, and Executive Education Programs. Professor Netzer, welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Danny, and th- thank you for inviting me. Um, with this introduction, it can only go downhill from here, but uh, but let's make it happen. <laughs> in our brief interactions, I know that the ruckus maker watching or listening is certainly in for a treat. And one of the things that I was excited about in terms of bringing you onto the show, uh, you know, they like to say data-rich, information-poor. Like school leaders are immersed, absolutely immersed in data. And I don't know that we actually use it all that effectively. So I want to hopefully leverage your wisdom and experience, yeah, to help out the ruckus maker watching or listening. But the, the opening story where I want to take us first is to have you talk about the story of Coke introducing a new flavor, right? That's a bold move to do. And why they were asking the wrong question when they introduced that flavor. Yeah, uh, that's a, um, a story that goes way back. And so um, it's, it's a, I'm a little bit disclosing my age here, uh, knowing this story, going back all the way to circa 1985, where Coke was introducing a new flavor. And in fact, the, the, the story backs from the few years before that, where Pepsi repeatedly showed that in, in blind taste tests, Pepsi tastes better than Coke, meaning people who did not know what they're drinking were blindfolded or they weren't really blindfolded, but they were giving a cup that they just had the drink and didn't know what they're drinking. When they were drinking Pepsi or Coke, they really preferred Pepsi over Coke. People preferred Pepsi over Coke. And, you know, they, they, people at Coke, they actually replicated these stats. So Pepsi went with this on advertising and, of course, the, the executives at Coke at Coca-Cola lost sleep over it, as you could imagine. And it really bugged them because they have ran the same experiment themselves and they found that it's true. <laughs> People in blind taste tests do, did prefer Pepsi over... Um, by the way, the way they do these uh, tests is also interesting maybe for the listeners. The way it is often done, you do an A, B, and a C cup. Uh, two of them are mm-hmm. the same, one is different, and you don't ask people only which one they prefer, but which two are the same and which one is different to see that people can mm-hmm. actually tell the difference to, to start. But on average, people preferred Pepsi over Coke in these blind test, taste tests. Uh, and because that's bothered the executives at Coca-Cola so much, they went into the R&D labs and started creating a drink that people would beat Pepsi in these blind taste tests that would taste actually right. better than Pepsi. And they created, they created the product. It was called New Coke. Uh, that's how they named it. Because uh, they wanted Today to... Today would be Coke Plus. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to keep the brand name, right? I mean, Coke was it's a big yeah. brand name, so they would keep that the New Coke. And they went with it to the market. 
there were literally riots in the street. People went out demonstrating, we mm. want back our, our old Coke. And, you know, the one that we've been drinking for generations over generation, kind of the American uh, heritage drink, right? We want back the classic <laughs> Coke. And Coke realized what's going on. They, they went back on their decision and said, okay, we're going to bring back the classic Coke after people again literally rioted in the street. Now, there, mm. there were actually millions of dollars in marketing research and, and research being done to come up with this new flavor. So what really went wrong? I mean, how could the company go so wrong? On We're talking about a multiple, multiple millions dollars type of decision, right? And um, the reality is that really Coke asked the wrong question. And uh, you'll see that, that um, kind of a common thread to, to the way I think about thinking about being data-driven is around asking the right questions. And Coke asked the, right, the wrong questions. The question that Coke asked was, well, if you go blindfolded, which one tastes better? But we mm-hmm. actually do not go to the supermarkets blindfolded. We go to the supermarkets, eyes wide open, look for the products. And the reality is that when our eyes are open, people did want Coke, not just for the taste of it. Again, for the history that goes with it, for the drinks that the generations have been drinking, and that's truly was the, 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 the difference, right? The, the wrong mm. question was to ask at all, what do people prefer when they're blindfolded? Because we rarely are blindfolded. And actually, it doesn't matter what we prefer when that we are, where we are blindfolded. What truly matters is, what do we prefer when we get the same product again that, that existed there for many generations and eventually again walk back? There was some argument, by the way, that suggested the whole thing um, benefited both Pepsi and Coke because sales for both went up after that. But I don't think that was intentional. I think it was really a, a asking grown question in a well-conducted marketing research. The, the, the research itself was well-conducted. That's really interesting. I, I remember the blind taste tests. I remember seeing those, uh, those commercials. And uh, yeah, certainly interesting. Yes, it does data. So that's okay. It seems to me that context matters a lot, right? Because you said we, we walk into the supermarket, the grocery store. We are not blindfolded, right? And... We're bringing, uh, yeah, our history, family. We look at the marketing, whatever, all this kind of stuff to to make this decision with our eyes wide open. Uh, I'm just curious, like, do you have anything else to add in terms of how the ruckus maker watching or listening when they're thinking about data and questions too, like the right questions to ask? Yeah, how does context play into that, and how do we, how can we, how can we avoid sort of the blind spot that Coke had? and avoid the wrong question. Yeah, I think that, that this is not me saying this is maybe the smart, smartest person ever lived. Albert Einstein said that I'm not, it's not that I'm smart, I'm just spending more time with the problem. We should mm. be both as, as again, um, leaders in education, but also our students, right? We should be thinking carefully about the problem. We should, we should be spending more time with the problem. We tend to have the, the tendency to jump straight into solution, to go straight into solution mode, to ask ourselves, mm. how can we address it, right? Because sitting and sit, thinking about the problem doesn't feel like war. Looking at data, analyzing things, or again, if you go back to our students and we tell them, oh, here's a math question and just want them to, to provide the answers, right? Spend time thinking about the problem. In fact, if you, if you look at it, again, let's go back to our students in, in, in education, most of the mistakes come from people reading wrong the questions, not from really not knowing the answer, right? right? Not spending enough time with a problem. And as you're 
thinking through the problem, you are likely to identify different angles, different dimensions to the problem, like the one that Coke has missed. Someone would have at some point said, well, that's fine, but should we also run tests that are not just taste tests, but taste tests that actually are not blind taste tests and realize, you know, yeah, we want to taste better for blindfolded, but we, let's make sure that we are, we also taste better for those who actually know what, that, what, it, what it is they're drinking. But more generally, I think we should cherish the skill of asking questions. In fact, in this book that, that I've written, Decisions Over Decimals, together, by the way, with uh, two colleagues of mine, Chris Frank from American Express and Paul Mignone from Google, one of the things that we are uh, arguing is that maybe we're doing job interviews all wrong. The way we do job interviews is we ask questions and we hope that whoever is on the other side is going to give us really good answers. But if you buy my argument that we need to be good at questioning it, asking questions, Mm -hmm. then it means that we should be testing for it when we interview a person. We should see if they're good question askers, right? Not just uh, responding to questions. I don't mean questions such as, well, tell me what is the culture in this school, right? I mean, this is an easy question. I'm talking about at least is a question to ask, not necessarily to answer. I think about a question in which I give you a scenario and I want to know what questions you need to know. You know, we have this problem in the school. Here is a scenario. Now tell me what, not just solve the problem, but what question, what do you need to know in order to answer this question? What do you wish in you in order to answer this question? Yeah, well, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Please, but it sounds like uh, what you what you're asserting here is that by a person demonstrating the questions to ask, not just how to solve the problem in this uh, scenario, they are giving you a glimpse on how they think, right? And if you know the quality of how they think, then you can make some guesses about the type of value or, you know, what they would bring to the table, so to speak, in your in your building. Is that correct? And then how they would interact, yeah, and, and definitely, and how they would interact with others, right? By, mm-hmm. by asking questions, by, by being more of a, a part of a community by seeking information, not just by providing answers. I, I right, We don't yeah. expect that anyone has all of the answers, but I do expect people to know how to find the answers, which often comes with good questions. Yes. Yeah, how would they figure it out? Perfect. I think you have another story too about a, a firefighter who saved his team from a, a collapsing building. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, we talk about this in the book and actually it's not even our story. It's coming actually from... And Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Blink, um, where we talk mm. about the, these Blink moments that people have. And this, this actually, a story actually relates to a framework that we talk about uh, in, in our book, in Decisions Over Decimals, where we, we, we call it quantitative intuition, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron. How can we take quantitative and put it together with intuition? I mean, aren't people like right brain, left brain? I'm good in math. I'm good in more of a... <laughs> humanities and so on. Our argument is actually, if you want to deal with data, the, the, the only way to do it, particularly at a, either a leadership level, or I would argue even again, teaching uh, kids in school, is to actually combine the data with a good sense of judgment and intuition. And we use for that the story of the firefighter, where the story there is a firefighter is rushing. It's a true story. I mean, a, a, a squad, a, a firefighting squad was rushing into a burning building, running straight into the kitchen because that's where most uh, fires are. And then the leader of the fire squad going into the building, looking around, you know, check that they look at the, the, the ceiling, looks at the, the, the walls. 
collecting information, again, data in the world of firefighting is that. You are assessing the environment, the context, as you mentioned before, Danny. And as they are standing there in, in, in the building, two minutes later, the, the, the leader of the firefighter squad calls into the radio and says, everybody out right now. They leave the building, and about a couple of minutes later, the building collapsed. So they interviewed yeah. him and they say, can you tell us, how did you make this Roy leadership decision? I mean, truly saving the lives of his squad. And uh, he said, I don't know. A lot of the things that I've seen in this building I've seen before and I never called the shot. Uh, but they, they argued further. They said, but, but truly, can you still help us? Can you still think through what was it here that caused you to call the shot? Because we want to teach future leaders to behave in a similar heroic way. And he thought about it, and then he said, well, now that I think about it, there are a couple of things that surprised me in that building. The first one was that the level of heat in the, that I felt did not match what the, the fires that I saw with the eyes. There was less fire than how hot the, the building was. And the second was, he said, that it was quieter. Usually you go to a burning building and it's super, super loud from the, the fire. So here it was quieter, mm. and that was like, I don't know what's going on here, but something here is wrong. So now that I'm standing outside, I can tell you what happened. I didn't realize that then. It was much more of a subconscious intuition. When I, uh, I can tell you exactly what happened. It is the fire was in the basement. Because the fire was mm. in the basement, it, the, the fire went up in the walls. It was hot, but I couldn't see the fire. It was also less noisy than usual. And that's why the building collapsed inside into the basement. Usually, again, fires are in the kitchen. This one happened to be in, in the basement. This is an example of what we call quantitative intuition. Again, you may ask, where is the quantitative? The quantitative comes more from the way, again, you collect information in that environment. Mm-hmm. But looking for these surprises, and the argument here is you're looking at information. Again, information can be data. Information can be a parent comes and tell you something about their view about the school. Information could be teacher's talking in the, during, during the break and you, and you collect information there, look for the surprises. Look for the things that don't match the pattern, not necessarily the things that do match the pattern. And we tend to right. so often look for the patterns because we are trained to, to look for patterns. Cherish surprises. Surprises are super important. And in fact, if anything, surprises are the places where we should be investigating further. The pattern, we know the pattern and that's exactly what we expect. Spending the time truly add the surprises would help us either find problems or really good insights. Either way, you benefit. Yeah, so explore those, explore those outliers and get curious about why they exist, the patterns we're familiar with to some extent. So, got yeah, it. And I love that they use the word outlier, by the way, because statisticians, right, or mathematicians call these outliers. And what do we do with outliers? We throw them away or we put them in the appendix. We need to Uh, actually focus on these as opposed to, again, outliers have a negative connotation Mm. to them, something we put aside, right? Our argument, my argument is bring them actually to the center and that's where you spend more time looking at these outliers. Why are they the outliers? Brilliant. Well, I used that word for you, Oded, so I'm glad glad it landed well. Thank you. I want to talk about it. (laughs) For sure. I want to talk about students and the student experience uh, with math, right? So one, one thing that I want to explore with you, and I, I think this would be really helpful for uh, the ruckus maker watching or listening, talk to us about, you know, just teaching kids to, to guesstimate, right? And why that's so right. important. Yeah, and, and, and I really want to um, uh, uh, 
provide maybe my, my uh, kudos to, to the, the, the current education, at least where my kids are, are going to school, that I have seen sure. that the education about, around math has changed and has changed towards mm-hmm. valuing things like estimating. I actually have seen my kids coming back home with homework like, you know, how much is 201 times, times 29, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, where the idea really is to tell them, do not solve the problem, but rather guesstimate the, the number, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you, again, you give me 201 times 29, I should be figuring out that I'm in the range of 6,000. I don't need to know the number. In fact, there are very few mm-hmm. occasions in life when I ask you the, that question of 201 times 29, then I actually expect you to solve the math as we, we as I've learned in school. When I need to know sure. the actual answer, you know, if you really need to fit a closet exactly into the into the hole in the wall, and I need to know exactly the distance, yes, this you know decimals may matter, right? But in most problems, we need to solve most places where we do use math. All I need is a ballpark of the number. In fact, I would even argue that in many cases when we do provide the exact number, we are and we are not just wrong, we are misleading. Uh, to give you an example, let's imagine that you're creating now a forecast of the school's budget for next year. And because you're using Excel and you're using multiplication of different things, you're going to tell me that the school budget for next year is going to be 800039 right, and 45 cents. Yes. That's projection for next year budget. We know it is inaccurate. There is no way you would know that they... they the budget for next year for the school at the level of, you know, the decimals after the, the, the decimals, right? It's not only wrong in your forecast for next year because you know it's wrong. You know, there is no way you would know it to that level. It's actually misleading because you give me the perception that actually you know the budget for next year down to the decimals, which, which we know we, you don't. So when, when we create even the, these, you know, sophisticated excels, we actually should be rounding up to the nearest Thousand, maybe even ten thousand, depending on your level of confidence with these numbers, or maybe even providing mm-hmm. a range. And again, I'm, I, the way I've learned math, unfortunately, was did not include guesstimating at all. It included mm-hmm. math has right and wrong answer, and you better give me the right answer, otherwise I'm going to deduct points. Right. Whereas, again, if you think about how we use it in life, math, most of the time we use it at the level of guesstimating. We use it at the level of if you give me around the right number, I'm totally happy. And I really think that, that schools that do that are moving in the right direction of educating the next generation to be feel comfortable with guesstimating to, we call it kind of t-shirt sizing, right? I mean, hmm. there is a reason why for t-shirts, we provide, you know, this small, medium, large, extra large, and so on, because that's the way it needs to fit the body. I don't really care the level of... You know, the small differences when we, when we buy a dress shirt, it's not good enough. I need to know it to a, to a finer level. We should teach similarly mm. when we teach math, not just the outcome, but what are we going to use it for? And therefore, how, how accurate does it need to be? And again, mm. I, I want to congratulate these schools that already have taken these steps. Listen to today's education and I encourage those who didn't to, to adopt this method of teaching students to guesstimate. I think it's a, it's a, Truly important. 100%. I love to pad my numbers and always uh, estimate a little higher because then when I 
typically come in under budget, I'm always pleased, right? Because I'm always padding it a bit. But that, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a cautious sort of conservative approach to forecasting and, you know, budgeting around certain items, but that certainly helps me. So I'm resonating with what you're saying. Well, Oded, I am loving our conversation. Uh, when we get back, I want to talk one more math question and how to fear people, or excuse me, relieve people, right? And free them from the fear of, I don't know how to do math. And I want to get into AI because that's a hot topic these days on education and hear your take on that as well. You know, something that drove me nuts as a ruckus maker was hearing teachers say, I taught it and the students should have learned it. But really, some teachers just don't know how to reteach so that all kids get it. That's where IXL comes in. IXL's diagnostic automatically identifies knowledge gaps for teachers and provides them with a personalized growth plan for each individual student. Teachers can step into the classroom every day, knowing what their students know and what they don't. IXL's adaptive platform makes differentiating instruction easy. As students learn, IXL adjusts to the right level of difficulty for each individual. Close knowledge gaps and accelerate learning with IXL. Get started today at IXL.com leaders. That's IXL.com leaders. What do you see in your classrooms and how did you see it? As a principal, you can't be everywhere at once. So how can you help support every teacher in the building? With TeachFX, teachers can gather their own feedback without relying on classroom observations. The TeachFX instructional coaching app is like giving every teacher their own instructional coach whenever they want it. Ruckus makers can pilot TeachFX with their teachers. Visit teachfx.com forward slash better leaders to learn how. That's teachfx.com forward slash better leaders. Have you read Executive Functions for Every Classroom yet? It's a game-changing resource that can help you transform every classroom on your campus and your students' lives. If you have any teachers who are struggling to engage their students, then Executive Functions for Every Classroom is the book for you. This groundbreaking book will equip you and your teachers with the tools to help students develop foundational executive functioning skills, enabling them to plan, focus attention, remembering instructions, and juggle multiple tasks successfully. Executive Functions for Every Classroom is a game changer, and it's here to help you take your school to the next level. Visit OrganizeBinder.com book and click on the link to order a copy for everybody on your staff. Let's do school different together. Head over to organizebinder.com slash book and get your copies today. All right, we're back with Oded Netzer, professor, who is also an author. He wrote Decisions Over Decimals. You can go over to dodthebook.com and pick up your copy, which we highly recommend. And we were talking math. We were talking students and their ability or inability to guesstimate. And we also want to free people. We want to free ruckus makers and their students from the fear of, I don't know math, right? A lot of kids might feel that way, maybe even adults. So, Oded, what would you say? How can we free? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, to be honest, it's one of the reasons that, that we wrote the book was, was exactly this myth. There is this myth that um, people are afraid of using data. 
because they're saying, well, I wasn't top of my class in math. I'm not an Excel whiz. I, I'm not this type of person. I'm more of the, you know, the right brain, not the left brain type person. Sure. And we believe it's a myth. It's a real myth, meaning there are skills needed to, to be data driven, to be able to rely on data. In fact, I often say that there are, that I have good news and bad news. They, I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is it's not a, a choice whether to make decisions with data. I mean, us as rockets makers, our students eventually will need to reuse data. This is reality. The good news is you don't need to be top of a class in math to do it. You don't need to be real, you have really good math skills to do it. And one, one approach we already talked about, guesstimating. Learning how to guesstimate does not require solving logarithms in your head, does not require solving square roots in your head. It requires really simple way of, of, of operations, which our brain is often wired for, right? So, these guesstimating type of tools help free us from the need to be correct or, or having, again, doing fancy math in our head to figure out how much is 2001 times um, 201 times 29. Uh, the, other, uh, the, the other thing with, with, uh, with numbers or with, with quantitative skills, in order to evaluate a number that you see, you rarely need to know math. What you do need to have mm-hmm. is something you mentioned before, Danny, which is context. And, mm. and context we learn from being in the environment, from seeing things around us. So that when we look at a number, we are saying, I don't know what you've done wrong, but this number is absolutely wrong. And the reason why I know this number is absolutely wrong, because I've seen a few other numbers, or I've seen, I, I've been in that area, and this is just not correct. And that requires very different skills. In fact, I would argue that it's a skills that those who spend most of their time with math, I'm, I'm thinking data scientists or statisticians, are actually lacking context because they're focusing more on how to calculate the numbers and less so about the environment, evaluate being what, we, what I like to call a, a fierce interrogator of data. First interrogator of data are not those who interrogate it more from a mathematical point of view, but rather from the context point of view and saying, I know that this number is wrong. Okay, again, I can't tell you what mistake you've made in your calculations. But mm-hmm. I look at this number and I can tell you it's wrong. And that's a very important skill that the people are, who are, um, who believe, oh, I can do math are often afraid to employ because they say, well, I don't know how you calculated it. It shouldn't matter. In fact, what should matter is that you know that this number is wrong, or at least you, it hurts in the stomach. Maybe the number is right and maybe they'll bring you a whole explanation of why that is right. It's exactly what I mentioned before. Look for the surprises. Bring your, and by the way, it's, Surprises are by definition quantitative intuition because what is a surprise? You have information, you have priors or intuition, and the two do not match. Look for these cases, you'll become a really good interrogator without being a math based. Okay, so looking for those, the surprises, the outliers have seemed to uh, popped up again. And, you know, it's just certainly very important. I, I'm curious, you know, do you have any? Quick tips, I guess, in terms of teaching leaders how to look for those surprises. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 I mean, a very, it's not a quick tip. That's a very long tip is experience. But uh, Heinrich Heine right. once said that experience is a great school, but the fees are high. So, yeah, having experience helps because then you look at the number and you say, look, I've, I've been here for a long time. Is this wrong? So what are the shortcuts to, to experience, right? Because again, we can't always afford to have the experience because we from one place to another and so on. And 
Learning a few numbers at the tip of your fingers. So um, consultants often do this. Before they go into a new environment, they often spend a day or two in the office just learning a few numbers. And again, you don't need to be top of class in math in order to just look at, at numbers, ask yourself, what is the top school doing? What is the, 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 the worst school doing? Now I know the range. So now when I see a number, I can say it falls within the range or not, right? These type of things that allow you to jumpstart the experience, if you will, by reading a little bit and, and learning the, the environment. So spend some time looking for reports, for example, about the industry or about the, the topic. So when you see a number, you can actually compare it to that and say, does it fall within on, or, or outside any, any reasonable range? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. And let me ask you, I got to ask about AI. I know it's a topic you're very interested in. And uh, obviously it's, it's in a lot of school leaders' minds these days, especially, uh, well, everybody loves to talk about chat GPT. I know there's a lot more AI than, than just that. But yeah, in terms of generative AI and your research, you know, implications for school, what are you thinking? Yeah, and and I know that I've been in a meeting that didn't discuss ChatGPT in the past uh, three months or four months. Um, I mean, I actually do a lot of my research on on this topic, on topic of AI, and specifically on language type models. And I have to say that what we have seen since November of 2022, when when OpenAI introduced ChatGPT, is a true leap in in technology and innovation in terms of where we are with generative AI. And it also started a little bit of an arm race and across the big the giants in that industry too. And we've seen even since then a huge progress in, in what these tools can do, uh, which means we truly live in a different world. And I think we, we better adapt to this new world we live in, right? And one question that people often ask is, well, what do we do with it in the classroom, right? And I think a good analogy for us is to go back to calculators. And when they came right. about and, you know, they, the, the analogy was, well, What's now? I mean, our kids will never learn how to do math now that calculators are there. And the approach we've taken eventually was, well, if you're in primary school, we definitely are going to, to um, not allow you to use this calculator. So you actually learn to do the things I talked about before, this guesstimating to do math in your head. But then as you go into, into high school and, and, and beyond, we actually are going to allow you to use calculators because that's what you're going to use when you go out there to the wild. I think we are likely to see something similar to that, where we're definitely in, in primary school and so on, we do want to make sure that kids learn how to write. They do learn how to express themselves. Um, and, you know, whether we're going to fully, I mean, prohibit these in schools or ban them in schools, or are we going to maybe conduct enough exercises in class where students cannot use them to make sure that, that they learn how to write? Uh, but this way or the other, we definitely want to make sure that people know how to write, independent of having machines that help help us write. But eventually, as we again go to high school and beyond, I think we will need to prepare people to a world in which we have now tools that that help us to write. Maybe to give you another example, I mean, I'm I'm an immigrant to to this country, and um, mm. from Israel, a non non English speaking country, came to this country in 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 the era of spell checkers. Am I spelling worse than I would have if spell checker did not exist for sure? Um, I, if, if I did not have spell checker, I would have been a better speller these days. On the other hand, are my documents better spell check than they would have been if spell checker did not exist? They're absolutely better, better spell check than if I didn't have spell checkers and had just to learn how to spell, right? So eventually, it, I think again, another analogy here that 
eventually our documents will become better, but some mm-hmm. of it will be us, some of it will be the generative AI. I do think that there are several important issues that we need to, to worry about. Um, one of them is currently misinformation and the fact that they are doing something yeah. that they, is called hallucinations uh, in the language of, of these language models. Um, they make up stuff uh, because yeah. it's a predict model that predicts the next word and the next word may not be correct. Or the next sentence or the, the source, for example, that they provide may not be correct. So they do tend to hallucinate. And so we need to find a solution for it. I am optimistic that the industry will find solution for it because it's an important problem. But maybe the more worrisome uh, solu- situation is that we now have the, the ability to generate a lot of text that creates by machine and, and by people with ill intent who, who will use it for the wrong purposes. It could be very persuasive language, right? It's very easy now to create misinformation with a very persuasive language using your model. Yeah. So I'm very sympathetic to the industry call to, I don't think pause because I don't think pause is, is, uh, um, is possible at this point, but for regulators yeah. to think, to already think about how do we, for example, authenticate something that comes from a machine so people know that whether they're speaking to a machine or to a human and so on. I think we need to. We definitely need to, to already be working on regulations, maybe not mimicking the mistakes that we've made with social media, letting the, the industry regulate itself. Yeah, that's worked out fantastically. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I like the idea, especially in political ads, and they talked about having a watermark, you know, and saying, hey, this was uh, generated by AI or something like that. But uh, one, one story, quick story I'll, I'll share that's fun. You know, I, I needed to send a letter. I was mentioning the Denver live event, right? At least on the live, it won't be on the recorded version of the podcast. But everybody that listens, they know I did a live event in Denver where I'm planning to do so. And uh, I needed to write an email inviting more people to attend, right? And at this point, let's say there was eight tickets left, okay? But Odette, I was tired. So what am I going to do? How am I going to get this email, right? I decided, well, chat GPT-4 is a perfect solution. I had already written an eight-page document myself that explain the event, the benefits, right? What you'll learn, the outcomes, deliverables, so on and so forth. And I asked, uh, I asked the robots to, hey, read this eight-page document and write a, a concise uh, email that invites people to attend, right? And it did it while I slept. I took a nap, a 20-minute nap. And when I woke up, it was there. I, say, I would say it's about 80% of where I wanted it. So I revised and massaged, you know, to 20% to get it to my voice. And then I hit send and a bunch of people applied and they came, right? So that's a teammate of mine now. It's a colleague, right? It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a tool, just like a calculator and it helped out, right? And the best thing, those leaders that come to Denver, they're going to get a great result too. You know what I mean? So it's a win-win, triple win uh, scenario for me. And um, yeah, so appreciate you, you sharing that. Let's and get I, I, to go ahead. Uh, relate to the word, to the the, the, the uh, phrase you use, which is a colleague, right? I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. think about having a colleague who just read the entire internet. Think about you're a programmer, and now I have yeah. a colleague sitting next to me who just read every single code ever written and is helping me writing mm-hmm. my code. It's yeah, could be a tremendous of tremendous value with dealing with the risks of understanding. What is really human created and, and, and how? Right. hundred percent. You know, I wanted some, there, there's a, uh, a white paper I wanted to put out around principal development retention forever. And, uh, 
to be honest, personally, me, I just, I'm not making the time. I don't have the time for it. So that means I'd either have to delegate to somebody on my team or find somebody out there, a freelancer, sort of interview, see if they're the right quality, so on and so forth, and then the cost and all of that. Uh, or what I chose to do is at least draft the first version. I asked ChatGPT, here's, here's you know the audience, superintendents, assistant superintendents. Here's the solution, the leadership community that we support and some information around it. And uh, write me 2,500 to 5,000 words with and include at least 10, uh, 10 pieces of research, right? Cited. And uh, it did, it spit something out. There's work that needs to be done for sure on it. But man, did that get me like really closer to done a lot faster. So yeah, appreciate it. One thing I would advise in this situation is check the sources because the so- because it's a predictive oh, model. Yeah. The sources yeah, yeah. are often not necessarily the real sources. They, are, they will be around the right source, but not always the exact one. Well, and to your point, I, was, I wasn't going to record it, but now I will since, you, since you're bringing it up. I think it hallucinated a few, right? Because it, yes. it did say one that was like an unpublished article. And I'm just like, that thing just totally made something up and cited it as, as valid. And I, I know that personally. So that, that's an issue that I have to change if I do anything with this report. To date, I, I haven't done anything. I just did this last night while I was watching uh, Barry on HBO Max. So anyways, okay, cool. Let's get to the last three questions uh, that I asked all my guests. And thanks again for being here. And Ruckus Makers, definitely check out Decisions Over Decimals. Get that at dodthebook.com. So Oded, if you could put a message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message be? I would focus on, it's not about the destination, enjoy the journey. I think we are way over-focusing on, on the outcome, on the metric, on the destination. It's not about the destination, enjoy the journey. 100%. Now let's talk about your dream school, Oded. You're building your dream school. You're not constrained by resources. Your only limitation is your ability to imagine. How would you build this dream school? And what would be the three guiding principles? Maybe it relates to things we already talked about, but um, sure. different different places. But focus on understanding, not necessarily on knowledge, but the ability to understand. I mean, again, I, relative to my own education, um, uh, when I was young, I think that schools are much better in teaching my kids to understand math as opposed to know math, to think through the processes of how did you come up with the answer? Don't just uh, give me the answer. Um, Focus on questioning skills. I would have a guiding principle on kids that are teaching kids to be curious, to ask questions. Let's focus again on the, the typical, definitely in the end, in the entry into school on testing and particularly testing around time period, right? We teach kids to think fast on in an exam type. Where is that useful in life apart from the next text, test that they need to do in order to get to other places in life? But if you really want to change the, the way education is being done, we need to teach less for testing and much more for critical thinking for, again, through understanding and through learning how to ask uh, questions. And, and the third one would be around what I just mentioned as what I would put on every school, which is I would focus the, the, the school on the journey as opposed to on the destination, making sure that kids love to come to school, enjoy the journey, the process of learning and not just this exam or the other exam of getting to this school or the other school uh, after this school and really making sure that the journey matters. At every moment we have the kids, we need to make sure that the, the, the journey matters. Even if they do for that 
at that point in time, something they may not enjoy because not everybody enjoy every part of school, but, but that they appreciate that it's, it's about the journey and it's not about just getting again this grade or the other grade then. Brilliant. We covered a lot of ground today, Oded, of everything we discussed. What's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Look for the surprise surprises. Trust your doubts. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. How would you like to lead with confidence, swap exhaustion for energy, turn your critics into cheerleaders, and so much more? The Ruckus Maker Mastermind is a world-class leadership program designed for growth-minded school leaders just like you. Go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind. Learn more about our program and fill out the application. We'll be in touch within 48 hours to talk how we can help you be even more effective. And by the way, we have cohorts that are diverse and mixed up. We also have cohorts just for women in leadership and a BIPOC-only cohort as well. When you're ready to level up, go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind and fill out the application. Thanks again for listening to the show. Bye for now and go make a ruckus. Oh,